large, I'm Leonard Lopate. In his new book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, Brendan Ballou, a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division, lays out the dangers of private equity, a trillion-dollar industry that hardly anyone understands. And he reveals how it will transform our lives over the next decade as profoundly as big tech did in the last, and not for the better unless we change how it does business. His book is published by Public Affairs, and it brings Brendan Ballou to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is a very important story, and I'm amazed that we're not hearing a lot more about it. But isn't private equity something of a mystery to most people? How much did you know about it before you started writing this book? It's a great question. And I confess that I didn't know much about private equity until I was probably a third of the way through the book project. So I don't think anybody should feel guilty for not knowing what it is. So what do we need to understand about these firms and what they're up to? Of course. And of, I should, of course, preface this by saying that I'm here in a personal capacity and my views don't necessarily represent those of the Department of Justice. Uh-huh. So um, just to lay out the basic issue, um, you know, what is private equity? Private equity is um, a business idea where firms use a little bit of their own money, some investor money, and a whole lot of borrowed money to buy up companies. They then try to make financial or operational changes to those companies with an aim of selling them for a profit a few years later. That's a very simple idea, but it often has bad consequences for three reasons. One is private equity firms tend to hold the companies they buy only for a few years, so they often have a very short-term perspective. Doesn't it? Um, doesn't its advocates say private equity makes companies more efficient when they buy them? And that's not true. That's certainly their argument. The challenge that you've got is that private equity firms often are insulated from liability for the consequences of their actions. So, you know, what may be an effort at efficiency, if it fails and people are hurt or customers uh, experience a worse um, uh, a worse product or employees lose their jobs, oftentimes private equity firms can walk away without consequence. You write that although it kills businesses and jobs, the government actually helps it do that. Aren't private equity firms less regulated than investment banks, which are generally considered either banks or bank holding companies? You're exactly right. So, after the Great Recession, you know the investment banks that I think we're all familiar with, you know Goldman Sachs, Lehman, uh, J.P. Morgan, and so forth, uh, all converted into bank holding companies, which are highly regulated by the Federal Reserve and others. Um, Private equity firms don't have any comparable regulation. There's some light regulation by the Securities and Exchange Commission and others, um, but it's interesting as you know investment banks have you know gotten more public scrutiny. Uh, private equity firms have sort of scooped up and taken a lot of the work that investment banks used to do because they don't have the same scrutiny. And they are much larger than those investment banks, aren't they? On the whole, uh, by some measures, yes. Um, uh, Blackstone, for instance, which is uh, one of the leading private equity firms, is nearing a trillion dollars in assets under management. Um, private equity firms as a whole uh, spent over a trillion dollars buying companies last year. And, you know, those sorts of numbers can become very abstract. Um, but just for comparison, the entire US GDP was about $25 trillion last year. 
What are some of the leading private equity firms? You mentioned Blackstone, also Carlisle, KKR, Bain, Apollo, Sun Capital. You've named them all. Um, So KKR, uh, Carlisle, and Blackstone, and the order might not be exact, if you considered them with the portfolio companies they buy, would actually be the third, fourth, and fifth largest employers in America after only Amazon and Walmart. Wow. And yet we hardly ever hear about them. You say that private equity will transform our lives over the next decade in ways as profound as big tech did in the last. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting, despite the fact that private equity firms don't get much attention, they really are transforming all of our lives. If you uh, go to a veterinary clinic or an OBGYN, if you uh, get water in Bayonne, New Jersey or Middleton, Pennsylvania, if you even read my book, uh, the font is licensed by a private equity firm, um, private equity surrounds you um, in a way that I think very few Americans understand. Well, if they are among the largest employers in America and hold assets that you say rival some small countries, why is how they work something of a mystery? You know, it's a it's a great question, because I think part of it is that private equity firms have managed to make their work seem, uh, frankly, rather boring. You know, Um, the, the very term private equity sounds very dull and you sort of your eyes glaze over. Um, They've also been very effective um, on a regulatory or lobbying front. Private equity and investment firms since 1990 have spent over $900 million in contributions to federal candidates and elected officials. So um, they've been very effective at advancing their agenda and I think as a result, keeping their profile lower than some other industries have. You begin your book with what private equity has done to nursing homes. Why did private equity target nursing homes in the first place? That's a great question. And private equity isn't alone. Other other investors have gone after nursing homes. But I think one of the appeals is that it's a very stable source of income. You know, most nursing home residents uh, get their money, you know, uh, pay for their stay through Medicare or Medicaid. And so the owner of a nursing home chain can get the money, um, you know, sort of reliably every month. The other issue is, and it kind of goes back to the the basic flaws of the private equity business model, is uh, when when something goes wrong at the nursing home chain, the private equity firm is rarely held legally responsible. Um, and in fact, there's a, a very tough story about a family who sued for wrongful death, and the ultimate owner, um, Carlisle, was able to get the, the case dismissed, arguing that it was, in fact, not the technical owner of the nursing home chain, but merely an advisor to a series of funds whose limited partners through several shell companies own the nursing home chain. And that sort of tricky argument or complicated argument um, was enough to get the case against Carlisle dismissed and absolve it of liability. You're talking about uh, Carlisle Group's acquisition of HCR Manor Care in 2007? Exactly. It was the second largest nursing home chain in America. Um, was its plan when it bought Manicare to load it with debt and then force it to sell its assets? I can't speak to, to Carlisle's intentions, but at least what was publicly reported as to what happened. Um, so one of the, the really interesting things about private equity acquisitions is, as I mentioned, they tend to buy companies with a lot of debt. But 
typically it's debt that the acquired company uh, is responsible for paying, not the private equity firm. And so this was an acquisition, if I'm recalling correctly, that was a little over $6 billion. Um, most of that was debt that that HCR Manor Care, the nursing home chain, had to take on. Um, as for selling the assets, this is a fairly standard tactic for private equity firms is um, what's called a sale leaseback. So, um, requiring the acquired company to essentially sell its assets, the real estate or whatever it happens to have, and then lease it back to itself. Um, the sale leaseback tactic generates a quick hit of cash for the company and for the private equity firm and its investors, but it means that the company now has sort of an unending lease obligation for something that it used to own. Well, Carlisle made its investment back through various transactions and management fees, and Manor Care was forced to cut back on costs, which led to health care, health code violations. And, and didn't it eventually go bankrupt? Yet, yes, it- Car- Carlisle seems to have come out of the whole thing without any problems. Uh, Carlisle, I think, continues to have, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, around $370 billion in assets in their management. Wow. So they're doing okay. Um, Manor Care uh, continues to function. I believe it's now owned by a nonprofit. But yes, it did go through bankruptcy. And um, after ownership as was publicly reported, health code violations spiked um, uh, under Carlisle's ownership and you know a, a number of other sort of sorry outcomes for the residents there. So do we see similar situations in how other private equity firms work, raising prices, reducing quality, cutting jobs, shifting resources from productive to unproductive parts of the economy? Yeah, you know, I don't want to overstate my case in that, you know, it's it's certainly not the situation that every private equity deal um, ends disastrously or, you know, even poorly for companies or for customers. But but you provide many examples, <laughs> a lot of examples. And I think the basic challenge that we've got here is because they're thinking short term, because they're using a lot of debt and fees and because they're insulated from liability. It creates a lot of incentives um, to to take an extractive approach to companies rather than an investment one. Um, you know, I can I can talk sort of high level numbers and get into specifics if you'd like. But sure. at least according to to one study, um, private equity firms are responsible, or private equity owned companies go bankrupt at ten times the rate of non private equity owned companies. Well, you do provide many examples of private equity companies buying up retailers, medical practices, prison services, nursing home chains, mobile home parks, among other businesses, while using little of their own money to do it and avoiding debt and liability for their actions. That sounds like an ideal business. Um, it's it's been a tremendously successful one. Um, you know, the leaders of private equity firms are are uh, billionaires many times over. Uh, the head of Blackstone makes, I believe, ten times uh, last year what the CEO of Goldman Sachs made. Um, and I don't think the CEO of Goldman Sachs is terribly underpaid. So it it has been a very successful business model for many people. Uh, and uh, because the companies they purchase are forced to take on huge debts and pay extractive fees, aren't they often left bankrupt or shells of their former selves? Uh, many times. You know, as I mentioned, the, the, there's about a 10 times the bankruptcy rate for private equity owned companies. One of the issues is, um, you know, private equity defenders will essentially say, why would um, a private equity firm want its business to go bankrupt? 
Um, and I think that's often true. But one of the really interesting things is there has been the development of a tactic to essentially use the bankruptcy process to keep control of the company, but then slough off the pension obligations of the company onto a quasi-government agency called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And that's a tactic that um, firms like Sun Capital have really developed as a way essentially to make money from companies while um, you know employees and retirees um, you know lose their investments potentially so do we the public wind up paying the bill that's a great question um, you potentially might um, so as I mentioned the PBGC is a quasi government agency um, most of their benefits um, are paid for by other more responsible pension uh, pension funds so if you have a pension there's a chance that um, you have helped to essentially subsidize this tactic. Um, there's going to be a really interesting movement going on um, sort of in private equities uh, entrance into the insurance industry, uh, which has a very similar dynamic where um, if the insurance companies they got by become insolvent, insolvent potentially it won't be the private equity firm that has to pay but rather, rather the state guarantee corporations um, and other sort of insurance and insurers and insurance policy holders at other more responsible companies that'll have to pay. Well, this is all rather shocking. So, why hasn't the government done anything to rein in the private equity industry? Has it been supporting it? In fact. Well, you know, I I, I don't want to make a blanket statement that the government has not helped to sort of. Ch- in, fix the private equity business model. But by and large, I think our various arms of government, from uh, regulators to elected officials at both the state and federal level, have been very accommodating of private equity. Um, It goes back in part, I think, to the contributions that private equity firms have given to, to candidates. I think it also goes to the really deep bench that private equity has developed for itself. You know, um, private equity firms uh, have or do employ uh, former secretaries of state, two, three former secretaries of treasury, secretaries of defense, any number of generals, a CIA director, um, chairman of the SEC and FCC, any number of senators, a vice president, two speakers of the house. Um, so they have a very deep bench to draw on, and I think that has made them very effective when they've tried to get their way in Congress and elsewhere. Well, haven't you served as special counsel for private mm-hmm. equity in the Justice Department's antitrust division? Have- I have, and unfortunately, that gets into an area where I can't be, you know, uh, be particularly uh, talkative here because uh, you know DOJ regulations prohibit me from talking about. Um, uh, current investigations or anything like that. My guest is Brendan Ballou, B-A-L-L-O-U. His book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, is published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Didn't um, financier William Simon, a Nixon administration official, come up with the idea for private equity in the 1970s? You know, whether I'm sure that there have been leverage buyouts that existed before Simon, but he was the one that really popularized the idea. So what he did is with a few investors, he put up, I think, less than a million dollars to buy through through a lot of debt, what was called Gibson's greeting cards. And 18 months later, they flipped it for, if I'm recalling correctly, something like $60 million. So it was just this 
phenomenal return on investment. They extracted um, huge fees and then, and then sold it for an enormous profit. Uh, yes. Well, they certainly made a lot of money from it. And it was it was funny. David Rubenstein, we were talking about Carlisle earlier, um, the, one of the co-founders of Carlisle, said that I believe it inspired him to get into private equity. He said something along the lines of like, I didn't know what leverage buyouts were, but it seemed like a lot more fun than being a lawyer. And another person who seemed to have noticed was Michael Milken, the so-called junk bond king. He, did he you, start following the model? You know, I I have not researched Milken's role as much as, frankly, I should have. But, um, you know, his his work in sort of leading the junk bond movement in the 80s, I think, was, you know, a crucial part of the financing of sort of the first round of leverage buyouts in the 1980s. After Drexel Burnham collapsed, um, I think private equity entered a fallow period, but has more than emerged from that um, in sort of our extended period of low interest rates. So things went kind of sour in the leverage buyout industry in the 1980s? Yeah, into the 1980s and 1990s, but for, for a variety of reasons, private equity has really had a resurgence in the last decade or two to, you know, such an extent I, that, um, you know, private equity, as I mentioned, had over a trillion dollars in acquisitions last year. Uh, Mitt Romney's Bain Capital was denounced as a prof profiteering predator in the 2012 election. Uh, he still is was elected to Congress. Uh, yeah, he was. And, you know, at the time, um, I think uh, Romney's candidacy brought attention to the private equity industry. Um, but I'm not sure it was a sustained attention. And one of the really interesting things is, as people are starting to pay attention to private equity again, um, the industry is actually sort of pivoting or rebranding itself. Um, many of the leading private equity uh, companies now refer to themselves as alternative asset managers, not private equity firms. And global investment businesses. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just that they're doing the same business, but they're not call themselves private equity? I think that's right. You know, though, with a, a really interesting caveat, which is while private equity firms continue to do a lot of private equity, they're also expanding into other industries. So um, I, I sort of alluded to insurance. One of the things that private equity firms are doing a lot now is buying up insurance companies. Um, they're also getting invested in infrastructure. They're taking on work of hedge funds. In fact, buying whole hedge fund operations from investment banks and so forth, getting involved in private credit and so forth. Um, you know, there was a, a quote from an analyst a few years ago to the effect of uh, Blackstone, one of the leading private equity firms, reminds me of Goldman Sachs a decade ago. He says, you know, wherever something interesting is happening, that's where they are. So private equity or private equity firms are expanding in every direction. And earlier, you kind of suggested that there's a revolving door between Washington and Wall Street. Uh, some of the people that I noticed were Timothy Geithner, Newt Gingrich, Paul Ryan, David Petraeus, all working in private equity now? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty extraordinary. I, I think I heard somebody say, um, this is all second or third hand, so it's hearsay, but uh, was talking to a former government official and was chided for working for a private equity firm, and he apparently said something to the effect of, yes, but who isn't? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And then there are people who aren't in, in government. Last year, didn't Kim Kardashian announce a partnership with a former Carlisle partner to start her own private equity firm? <laughs> yes. Yes, she has. I don't know how successful that effort has been. I, I'm not saying that it's been unsuccessful, but I haven't heard much beyond the announcement. But yes, there are certainly um, uh, folks that are excited about private equity and rightly see it as a money-making opportunity. So she's not alone. I just noticed her name. What, yes. You, well, you know, it's it's interesting. Private equity has often been a um, investment vehicle for the very wealthy. Um, traditionally, they've gotten, you know, private equity firms have gotten their money from pension funds, from sovereign wealth funds, so i.e. the you know foreign governments and um, wealthy individuals. The really interesting trend is um, private equity is now trying to sort of move to a retail mode and get access to people's 401k funds. So soon enough, it might not just be Kim Kardashian that's working with private equity. It might be you, too. A listener wonders whether the Bush family has been part of this. Uh, in some ways, yes. So, um, President George H.W. Bush was um, involved in the Carlyle Group and gave various speeches on their behalf. Uh, Carlyle, when it was um, uh, first getting started, actually put George W. Bush on the board of one of its portfolio companies. So, yes, there, there, there has been intersections between the Bush family and, um, and various private equity firms. So it's mostly Republican, but not completely. I think it's I think it's surprisingly bipartisan. I think if you go to um, uh, Real Clear or um, Open Secrets, which tracks uh, donation information, um, I believe it's you know bipartisan um, with Republican donations just slightly edging out donations to Democrats. Aren't private equity firms increasingly taking on the role that the investment banks used to have before the, the crisis? That's exactly right. So, as as we were mentioning earlier, a lot of investment banks uh, converted into bank holding companies, which subjected them to a lot more scrutiny. Private equity firms historically have not had the same level of scrutiny, and so have expanded into a lot of different areas. You know, I've already sort of touched on some of them, but one of the really interesting ones is the private credit market, which is um, uh, expanding out uh, to essentially lend money to companies outside of the traditional stock market. So it's an the alternative to the public stock market? Exactly. Um, and in fact, the private market, the private credit market, as I understand it, is significantly larger than the, the public stock market at this point. It allows a, a company to get a large loan without necessarily making the sort of disclosures that it would need to in, in public capital market. Yeah, almost by definition. Yeah. So um, there's been criticism of the private credit market um, for its opacity and um, a potential reliance on sort of lesser tier credit rating agencies and so forth. I can't really opine on that because I'm, you know, a lawyer, not a, a financier. But there is concern that you know this is a potentially another sort of bubble in that it's a it's an area where a lot of money is going, but there's not a lot of transparency. Well, if you have noticed this and written a book on it. I would assume there are other people, uh, people in government who have noticed it as well. And yet, as I said earlier, uh, we rarely hear much about this and the government doesn't seem to be concerned about correcting the situation. 
Well, I think that there's certainly a lot more that can be done by the government, both the federal government and state and local governments. And, and I, I realize about, that as, as a member of the government, you can't talk about certain things, right? I, I appreciate your understanding. I can just point to a couple of areas which are which are really interesting. Um, so the Securities and Exchange Commission is pushing out various rulemakings to increase the, tra- the transparency of the private equity industry, um, doing things like uh, this will sound very obscure, but revising something called Form PF, um, putting out new fiduciary disclosure obligations for private equity firms and so forth. Um, So there's progress over the SEC. Over at Health and Human Services, which is an area um, which, uh, you know, we were talking about private equity and nursing homes earlier, are pushing new rulemakings uh, to increase uh, both disclosure of nursing home ownership and also to uh, set a national standard for minimum staffing criteria for nursing homes. So those are a couple of things that are happening at the federal level. But I'll also say a lot of the action here on sort of reforming the private equity business model needs to happen um, at a state and local level. Um, private equity firms are responding as much to state and local laws as they are to federal ones. So the, if, if people are concerned about this business model, there needs to be a sort of all of government approach here. Well, we mentioned uh, the impact on nursing homes, and that would have an impact on the communities that those nursing homes are in. And I would assume that uh, local politicians, local legislators would also be paying some attention. So is work being done on at least in, on the community levels, on the city levels? Yeah, you know, one of the, I think the most inspiring campaigns that's been going out there has been um, uh, around prison services and prison phone companies. So you touched on this earlier, but private equity firms have gotten very interested in prison phone services um, because it's an area where essentially you can increase prices uh, pretty substantially without you know customers going elsewhere because they are you know a literally captive audience. Wait, can you go into more detail on that? What are prison phone services? Oh, of course. So, um, you know, if if you or a loved one is imprisoned, um, you know, and they want to call somebody outside, um, generally the call is not free. They have to or you have to pay for the privilege of that communication. Um, Now, through contracts with state and local governments, private equity firms have bought up many of the companies that provide these prison phone services. And there's been a lot of documentation that um, these prices have just been astronomical to such an extent that at least in some jurisdictions, it was a $25 for a 15 minute phone call. Um, So pretty extraordinary. to go back to your point about where is sort of local activity happening, I think one of the most encouraging areas is around these prison phone services. Um, organizations like Worth Rises and a woman named Bianca Tylek, among many others, um, have been just incredibly effective at um, pushing states and localities to stop um, burdensome uh, pricing for these services. And actually, you know, not only passed legislation, I believe, in New York and San Francisco, and I believe statewide in Connecticut, actually recently got federal legislation on this um, to empower the FCC to do rulemaking on it. So I, I think that there are areas of real local and activist progress, especially when you focus on um, specific industries and issues. Well, 
I was wondering about uh, if you go to your veteran to the veterinarian or to the OBGYN, if you buy contact lenses or if you're paying for your tap water, whether some of your money is going to private equity. Oh, for all of those and more. Yeah, no, the the tap water story is really interesting. Um, KKR along with. Yeah, a KKR along with an operating partner um, successfully purchased the water systems in Bayonne, New Jersey, and Middleton, Connecticut. Um, and in both places, the the well, they they purchased the operations of it. In both places, the the jurisdictions got a quick hit of cash and an expectation that rates um, for water usage were going to stay more or less even. Um, that was not the case in either one. Um, rates spiked dramatically to such an extent that people were telling reporters that they became "quote unquote" water Nazis, and um, you know, checked which kinds of flowers to buy to make sure that they didn't require a lot of water. Even timed each other on using the shower. Um, I believe at least one of those cities sued to try to escape the contract um, and failed. Uh, the ultimate result of which is that these two cities are now sort of shouldered with um, a contract that is going to last for decades. Meanwhile, KKR exited the um, the joint venture and I think doubled or tripled its investment after four years. So um, it was a situation that worked rather well for the private equity firm, but not for the residents of these cities. Wow. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Brendan Ballou. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the book we've been discussing, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's give and the number 2, wbai.org, or call 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. That's two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty. Do that during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation. In the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much if you do that. And return now to Brendan Ballou, his book, Plunder: Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, is published by Public Affairs. He's a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's antitrust division. Um, now, in, uh, I want to tell another story because I think some of these stories are really interesting. Uh, in 2007, I mean, I never heard of I never heard these stories before. And yet uh, some of them are, are rather shocking. 2007, Sun Capital bought up Friendly's, the ice cream and din- and diner chain, and sold off the assets, uh, and and pushed Friendly's into bankruptcy. 
Yeah, it's um, a fascinating story, and I think explains in part why private equity firms often have such high bankruptcy rates. So, as you mentioned, Friendly's was this uh, diner chain in the Northeast. You know, they they served the fribble, fribble milkshake and so forth. It was founded by these two brothers um, during the Great Depression. Um, they Sun Capital bought uh, Friendly's up, executed some of the tactics that we've talked about, about a sale leaseback and so forth, and ultimately pushed the company into bankruptcy. Um, what was really interesting about that story was Sun Capital was the owner of Friendly's, but it was also Friendly's largest lender. And why would it do that? It how did, how that does that work? Uh, yes. Well, you know, if, if you are the owner, how can you also be the lender, the creditor? <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's um, it, there's no law against it. And in fact, there, there are perfectly reasonable sort of financial reasons why you might do this. But one of the reasons that it works so effectively in bankruptcy is that by being the company's largest lender, it was able to sell friendlies from itself to itself, um, which is this sort of uh, incredible sort of uh, magic trick almost. And by doing that, they were able to push off the pension obligations that Friendly's had onto uh, the organization we mentioned earlier, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. So essentially, it was um, a way for, as um, Josh Gottbaum, the the former head of the PBGC, told, called it to the Washington Post, it was a form of pension laundering, a way to hold on to the company while losing the obligations to retirees and employees. So they sloughed off the pension obligations. Uh, which were taken over, as you say, by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Um, I don't know. That sounds maybe not illegal, but it sure does sound uh, nasty. Uh, what, what, what happened to the workers? I think the the you know for for the workers of Friendlies it was not ideal. I think uh, Friendlies closed I think sixty one locations. There was some there was some very sad reporting about the last day in one of the in one of the Friendlies stores. So it was not a success for the workers of Friendlies. It was uh, not success for a success for the founders of Friendlies who you know lived to be each lived to be over a hundred years old and saw their sort of creation co- collapse. Um, at least in the short term, it seemed to work rather well for Sun Capital, and it also worked well for um, Sun Capital's attorneys, which um, had their rates set by the, the bankruptcy courts and I, I believe made a, a rather substantial multi-million dollar sum on that. So what happened to those workers? I can't speak to them personally, you know, um, but it's it's tough because one of the challenges that you got is when these pension funds get pushed off to the PBGC. Um, I think they were able to pay the full obligations for the friendly situation, but for other ones, um, Sun Capital executed a similar tactic with Marsh Grocery Store, um, which is a chain in the Midwest. Um, my understanding is that they were not able to completely fund the pension obligations, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately workers lost some of their benefits. Now, I, I put the emphasis on the word workers because there was a separate pension fund for the leading executives of Marsh Supermarkets that um, remained fully funded. Of course. Uh, do taxpayers end up footing some of the bill? 
Um, I believe potentially, ultimately, you know, most of the the PBGC funds, as I understand it, come from other more responsible pension companies. So it's less that the government has to pay it, and it's more that you have to pay it um, if you are a pensioner um, at a non-private equity-owned company. Can private equity firms sue the com- customers of the companies they buy? Uh, those <laughs> yes, people they- are often working class and poor people. Uh, but those customers can't sue them because of forced arbitration arguments. Can you explain? Yeah. So um, it, it appears that the tactic in some private equity acquisitions, certainly not all of them, but some, is to take a more aggressive litigation stance um, with the portfolio company's own customers. So um, after Blackstone bought a hospital chain, for instance, um, Lawsuits against um, clients or you know patients who couldn't pay their bills um, were larger than uh, there were more lawsuits than I believe all the three other hospitals in the region combined. Um, in uh, uh, payday lending, I, I looked at two for two payday lenders, one private equity owned, one non, um, and uh, lawsuits or cases against uh, potential customers seemed to skyrocket after the private equity acquisition. So it does seem to be the case that um, the tactic, at least sometimes, appears to be to take a more litigious route against um, their own customers. You sort of touched on this in your question. The interesting problem that you've got is oftentimes customers cannot then sue the private equity firm or the company itself um, in federal or state court, but have to rely on arbitration. Um, There is a really sad story about- Why is that? um, so, to use a specific why arbitration example, as opposed to just simply saying they took my money and they shouldn't have. <laughs> Well, the Federal Arbitration Act has been interpreted very broadly, and companies have been able to um, essentially push arbitration agreements onto customers, clients, and patients um, uh, almost without restriction. That, that's overstating a little bit, but um, often, you know, by signing any agreement with these companies, they are, uh, you know, customers are forced into arbitration, even if the company or the private equity firm itself can rely on the state or federal judicial system for their own claims. So much of this sounds sleazy. Uh, uh, I feel at times we're discussing a situation in another country, not the United States. <laughs> uh, well, private equity is a global phenomenon, so it's you know similar tactics may be um, happening elsewhere. I think. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to to the the point that we were talking about earlier. Is you know, one of private equity's big accomplishments has been to make their work seem um, very very boring. Um, and it's when things seem dull and in the details that I think um, some of these most concerning tactics thrive. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Brendan Ballou. His book, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, is published by Public Affairs. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So much of what you've been describing sounds rather frustrating. Uh, What's the first thing you would do to to change the situation? (laughs) And, and, and And would it be really complicated to to move us into a whole other direction. 
Well, I, I devote the whole last chapter to uh, a long list of reforms that we can make to improve the private equity business model. I think it ultimately goes to um, the three problems that we were talking about earlier about why private equity firms often have bad results. Um, you know, the focus on short-term investments, reliance on debt and fees, and insulation from liability. And if you can solve those problems, um, private equity can be made a productive um, and helpful part of the economy. You know, we we always need finance and people who are willing to make bets on companies so that they can grow and expand. Um, ultimately, how do we do that? Um, you know, we can look to Congress for legislation, but there's a whole range of things that can happen through federal regulators. We already talked about the SEC and Health and Human Services, um, the Federal Reserve, Treasury Department, Fannie and Freddie. Um, but also, as we were talking about earlier, action through states and localities. Um, states can be passing legislation to say, you know, if private equity firms engage in extractive tactics, ultimately they can be held liable um, for their actions. So there's a there are a lot of different levers that we can pull to make the private equity model more efficient. You also mentioned the abuses of for-profit colleges. Yes, this is an area where private equity has been has been pretty active buying up for-profit colleges. Um, the academic research out there suggests that outcomes for students at private equity-owned uh, for-profit colleges are worse than a non-private uh, equity-owned for-profit colleges, if such a thing were possible in terms of uh, completion rates, um, earnings, um, uh, and and debt, and so forth. So, it's been a, it's certainly been an attractive industry for private equity. And then, uh, even ambulance services are affected. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think private equity. Um, uh, has really been attracted to ambulances. You know, it kind of goes back to the idea of a captive audience. You know, uh, people are going to pay what they're going to pay. <laughs> You're in an ambulance. For... You are a captive audience. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In fact, there was the New York Times did some really interesting reporting back in 2016 about um, PE acquisitions of ambulances and how they would have training programs and and signs up saying that um you know if a person is conscious they can sign the necessary release forms um wow. uh to to get them admitted and and so forth so um it it's another case again according to that public reporting where after pe firms bought up ambulance chains uh there was a substantial increase in the percentage of of ambulance company bankruptcies so um I think for a younger generation that uh, really only knows about a sort of privatized ambulance force, this isn't terribly surprising. But for anybody who remembers when ambulances were primarily the domain of you know cities and states, which they were well into the 90s, um, I think this may be upsetting. How can we protect tenants in private equity-owned rental properties? So PE firms have been buying up um, a lot of single-family properties and flipping them into rentals, um, and you know that—that's the outcome of the Great Recession when these large tracts of foreclosed homes were sold to investors and then converted. Often in jurisdictions, single-family rentals do not have the same tenant protections as uh, apartment buildings or multifamily homes. There have been efforts to extend those protections in different jurisdictions, as I recall. 
Blackstone ultimately spent $7 million opposing um, sort of similar reforms in California and were ultimately successful in getting that plan defeated. But just generally, we need to be treating sort of the variety of homes that we have, single family rentals, mobile homes and so forth, on a on an equal footing to make sure that um, people have the same protections. We also need to be making sure that you know Fannie and Freddie, which um, have a hand in you know at various points almost half of all mortgages in America, when they have the opportunity to sell homes or sell mobile homes, that they do so to individuals, to homeowners, or to nonprofits or cooperative organizations that are going to be thinking for the long term for their residents. I'm sure I've left some important things out. Uh, you want to talk about some of the other things that uh, you're concerned about? Um, well, physician staffing companies, I think, is a really, really uh, important story. So, um, physician. So, you know, one of the one of the challenges that we all face are, you know, quote unquote, surprise medical bills, and that's when you go to a doctor and you think that you're in network, and it turns out that doctor works for a different hospital or a different clinic or so forth. Or does Private it take your insurance? Exactly. And private equity firms have really um, perfected this business model with physician staffing companies for emergency rooms. So if you go to an emergency room, oftentimes you'll be treated by a doctor that's out of network and you're going to get a bill that's you know substantially higher than what you expected. Um, in fact, I, I remember one researcher at Yale said that you know after a private equity firm sort of bought up the the staffing operations, it was um, like a like a light had been switched um, in terms of you know the number of out of network bills. So it's a problem that potentially faces all of us. It's really scary, and it's one that Congress has really struggled to solve in a fundamental way. Um, there was surprise medical billing um, legislation, I believe, two years ago. Um, three years ago, the private equity industry successfully blew it up. The version that that did ultimately pass um, really did not solve the fundamental cause of surprise medical billing, and ultimately, to go back to an earlier point, accepted ambulances from that. So, it's another area where um, PE has been has been very active. How could the Securities and Exchange Commission improve things? So a couple things, you know, I already mentioned these obscure things like Form PF, which is um, uh, the form that private equity and hedge funds have to fill out um, and submit to the SEC. A lot of the challenge that we've got is we literally don't know um, what private equity firms do, what assets they hold, and and what their potential risk is to um, to the economy. So, increasing transparency is going to be one important step. The SEC is also already looking at things like you know, surprisingly, private equity firms will often or sometimes contract away their fiduciary obligations um, to their own investors, uh, so that they can act in you know, private equity firms can act in their own interests, potentially above those of the of the um, uh, of the investor, um, changing that is is going to be really important. Um, and then something that the SEC uh, should you know potentially consider alongside the Department of Labor is looking at rolling back private equity's access to four hundred one k funds. So, because the Trump um, administration issued a directive allowing four hundred one k asset managers to invest in private equity funds. Exactly. So if you've got a four hundred one k. Historically, your manager, you know Charles Schwab or Fidelity or whatever it happens to be, has not invested in private equity um, for fear of essentially being sued. 
in the last administration, um, there was a letter released that essentially insulated 401k fund managers from that um, liability. And as a result, private equity firms are pushing hard to get access to uh, to individuals 401k funds. So if if you are concerned about PE firms getting access to your retirement money and using it for their own acquisitions and investments and so forth, um, I think it's going to be important to, to fully rescind that letter. You said that the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission should investigate roll-ups. What are roll-ups? So a roll-up is a serial acquisition in an industry with the intention of sort of combining their operations. So, you know, private equity firms will buy up, um, you know, veterinary clinics in a in a given area, um, put them all under one umbrella, whether or not they rename the thing, and then you know there are potential efficiencies of scale, you know, in that they can buy supplies in bulk cheaper and so forth. But there's also potential market power that they can lower their pay for veterinarians and increase prices for workers. Um, I mentioned veterinarians specifically because that's actually one that the Federal Trade Commission has pursued and, and recently got an injunction against a private equity owned veterinary clinic to prohibit further expansion in some areas. But, you know, as private equity sort of expands in all sorts of directions, you know, whether it's medical practices or um, church nonprofit software, board game makers, you know, portable toilets, just about everything that you can name. Um, I think it's important that, um, you know, sort of observers, whether it's the federal government, state attorneys general or private litigants, um, you know, look at these rule ups to see whether they violate the antitrust laws. Anything you want to add before we wrap this thing up? Uh, maybe just a message of hope in that I think, you know, historically people have been really pessimistic about um, uh, solving the problems of the private equity business model. But, you know, in a lot of ways, these are very similar to the trusts of the 19th century. Um, and we ultimately reformed and restrained the power of the trust. Um, it's not a guarantee, but we can do so again here. But I suspect that the great percentage of my listeners uh, are like me and knew very little, if anything, about private equity until we started this conversation. Uh, this is uh, something that has been pretty much uh, a hidden part of our economy. Well, you're helping to change that, so thank you. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to change it with the, by doing a radio show of this sort, and I'm sure that's what you were hoping to do when you wrote this book. Um, have you found that there are other people out there who are as concerned about this situation as you are? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's been great. You know, not only are books being written about this, but there really is a growing group of activists that are working on this thing. You know, whether it's Americans for Financial Reform, the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, um, Open Markets Institute, and the American Economic Liberties Project. Um, if people are interested in these issues and um, want to learn more, there are a lot of groups out there that are doing important work. And so I'd encourage your listeners to um, to see how they can get involved. And meanwhile, they can read the book. It's <laughs> Yes, they certainly can. It's called Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, published by Public Affairs. And my great thanks to Brendan Ballou, who is a federal prosecutor who served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. It's been fascinating talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you so much for the time.
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station on the air. Uh, We are going through a really rough time right now economically, finding it hard to pay the rent, pay our transmitter bill. Most public radio stations are going through rough times, but um, I I don't care about the other ones, to be honest. I only care about BAI. uh, And... uh, And also, if you support us, you're supporting this show, which comes to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else and I suspect much of what you heard over the last hour is all new to you. As I mentioned, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Linda Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America by Brendan Ballou. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of WBAI, what we call a BAI buddy, which allows us to plan for the future because you'll be sending in $10, $15, $25, whatever, $30, whatever you're comfortable with a month into the future until you decide you no longer want to do it. And that allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thank you if you do that for $10 a month or more with a WBAI tote bag. So make that call, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. But whether you become a member, uh, uh, just become a member or and even get the book or become a sustaining member, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Ahmed White discussing his new book, Under the Iron Heel. We'll see you then. Thank you.